0: Welcome to Revisiting the Vault, a podcast where we're looking at the history of art, animation, music, and just about everything else, but through a Disney lens. I am Mary Ratliff. I am a filmmaker, writer, social media person, lover of visual arts, and lover of film.
1: And I'm Gretchen Hartwell. I am none of those things. I am a fashion history enthusiast. I am a former performing musician. I have a child who's into Disney stuff. I am a general person. (laughs) I'm a vet tech.
0: We do have some notes on our last episode. That's right. I do want to owe an apology to Edgar Bergen (laughs) in that I read that he was actually a classically trained. Ventriloquist, very good one. But when he started getting radio gigs, he learned that timing was way more important. And he was on the radio, so it kind of didn't matter. So he learned that it was more important to be funny than to worry about his lip movements. Mm -hmm. And that's why he became the joke, the Ventriloquist for radio, because he just let his mouth move when he needed to. I think that's fair, because he really did have excellent comedic timing. So... And then the other thing where I just was like, of course, he was probably a big influence on Jim Henson. Yes. Yeah, you weren't wrong. You were not wrong. (laughs) Very much so. He was a huge, huge influence on Jim Henson. He was one of Jim Henson's idols to the point where he appeared on The Muppet Show. So did Candace Bergen, Mm -hmm. incidentally, before Edgar Bergen did, which surprised me. But sadly, this is not a Muppet podcast. Right. It surprises me that I did not know this, but I have not watched the Muppet movie in eons, which the Muppet movie is Edgar Bergen's last film, and it is dedicated to his memory. Well, that's sweet. Yeah, it was a nice little touch there. So, Mm -hmm. Edgar Bergen, I'm sorry that I insulted your ventriloquist abilities. But yeah, so this podcast project, we're watching all of the Disney animated features in chronological order. We have finally reached 1950 Cinderella released on march 4th 1950 its runtime is only an hour and 14 minutes this is the thing that is surprising me the most so far in this podcast Mm -hmm. is that all of these movies are so much shorter than i thought they were because you were a kid that's true sometimes that works really well in this case i think it does but i think that it's it's pretty interesting that it is very slim Mm -hmm. giving this a sense of place we've got cinderella it's 1950 babies were booming my
1: parents were born
0: cold war was starting Getting a little chilly. Mm -hmm. Peanuts, the comic strip debuts. Didn't realize that was that old. I didn't either. And then also two of the big hits of the year were All About Eve and Sunset Boulevard. I find that notable, not just because those are two of my favorite movies, but also because those are movies that are both cynical. Mm -hmm. A lot of the other big movies of the year were war movies. That's not too surprising. All About Eve, which is people haven't seen. Just go watch it. Like just hit pause. Go watch All About Eve. Should I also do that? Yes, please.
1: Okay. Okay.
0: (laughs) It is an excellent and timeless movie, but also you could just watch it because Betty Davis is always a dork. Hey, yeah. But anyway, so those are sort of cynical movies, but Cinderella is, it is almost like the uber fairy tale. Mm -hmm. I know I'm misusing the term monomyth right now, but it feels like it is the monomyth of our culture. Like it is the thing that so much goes back to. So many things are built on it. But the core of Cinderella, is optimism right. and kindness mm-hmm. and belief and faith. We've got this year where like all about Eve and Sunset Boulevard, which are both about women getting older and just very cynical takes on how things are going in the world. And then you've got Cinderella. Notably, Walt Disney said that this was one of it was his favorite fairy tale. Mm-hmm. I think that that's interesting because there's a good bit in um, I want to say it's a Smithsonian article that I read where they said that the reason that Cinderella resonate so well with American audiences is sort of the American dream mythology. Right. That's what people get out of it in the modern age. And that was what people were probably getting out of it in 1950, for sure. Because 1950, I mean, you've got the greatest generation coming back from war. You've got economic boom times happening, for sure.
1: Yes, the post-war boom was in full swing. And so many children were being born. And I mean, like I said, both of my parents born in 1950.
0: That is, I mean, when we call it the baby boom, I think that sometimes when people start talking about boomers now, they don't understand where that's coming from. Mm-hmm. There were so many children. But anyway,
1: okay, back to our movie.
0: See, things in the culture, I think, were shifting in a lot of ways. And we also, at this moment in time for Disney, the company... I was very much surprised to read that they were still $4 million in debt, according to one source. Right.
1: I saw that, too.
0: Yeah. Even after the package films, even after all of the wartime propaganda films they were making for the Army, they're still $4 million in debt. And this is 1950.
1: Right. That's like $700 billion trillion. I mean, I'm exaggerating, obviously, but yeah.
0: For me, it's just, just a staggering amount of money even to think of right now. I mean, for business, obviously, it's a little bit different. But in 1950 money, that is... A lot. But Disney's got the opportunity. He feels like he's in a safe enough space to go ahead and go back to something Mm -hmm. that is deeper, more finely done, and a feature-length story. He apparently makes a bet with the teams behind that are working on Cinderella and Alice in Wonderland and tells them, let's see who gets done first and which one's better. And we'll release that one first and Cinderella wins. Mm -hmm. One thing that I found really interesting about Cinderella is that I felt like there was a very intentional calling back to Snow White in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. As we mentioned, it's only the second princess movie. So Disney isn't known as the Princess Factory yet. This isn't necessarily their thing. We've got the old-timey storybook, the actual live-action film of the storybook opening, narration, going into the drawings in the storybook, and then becoming animated. We've got the animal helpers that are helping her do her chores. I mean, it's just you've got a lot of stuff that is not narratively calling back. It's like a, a veneer yeah, of familiar, comfortable things. So it almost feels like them being like, remember Snow White? Remember how you loved Snow White? You should love this, too, because you love Snow White. <laughs>
1: yes. Well, and I think that you can also view that cynically if you choose to, which, I mean, I don't care one way or the other, but they're like, well, what worked with Snow White? Right. What was it that worked? Okay, there was a princess. Well, we got a better one of those. And there was this style and that thing. And, oh, the ant- the helping animals, they were a hit. Everybody loved those things. If you look at it cynically, it- you could make the case that they looked at the things and they were like, What can can we do that again, but make it better? And frankly, they did.
0: I think that this works. The things they chose to pull in were things that could be organic to the story and could work with the story. It's not shoehorned.
1: No. You know, honestly, it wasn't just in Snow White that they had done the storybook where you kind of go into the book. They did it in some of the package films.
0: Yeah. I mean, jumping into books was actually a lot of the package films now that I'm thinking about it.
1: And so I think they were like, you know what? This is a good setup. It's a way to bring people in literally into the story. Let's have a narrator do some world building and boom, we're in. It's efficient.
0: And I mean, you know, if we want to talk about that opening narration, I remember the opening narration on Snow White feeling like a total exposition dump. Mm -hmm. But this, I actually felt that opening narration, it was a lot more robust than I mean, I didn't remember it existed at all. The fact that they're just like outright telling us that Lady Tremaine's motivation is that she's jealous of Cinderella's kindness and beauty and that people like her and that she is making the family go broke and squandering their fortunes on things to try to do things for her daughters. Mm -hmm. I didn't realize that that was in this one. There's a level of depth that you get from the narration that, of course, is. I don't think kids are probably paying much attention to the narration because clearly I forgot it existed. Right. But I think it gives this. Cinderella more depth than the internet gives it credit for.
1: We'll get to this more later, but I didn't have necessarily the fondest memories of this film. I had not seen the animated one in a long time. I'm not sure if I ever actually watched it with my daughter. She watched it with me and I know she had seen it when she was younger too, but I think some of my frustrations watching it again including some of the stuff you touched on, like where the narrator just right off the bat addresses, okay, this is what's happening here. Let's dive in. Lady Tremaine is jealous, blah, 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 blah. And they get into it. She goes, the whole setup, it's really efficient is what it is.
0: Because we've only got an hour.
1: Yeah. And it kind of did, my memory of it was a little unfair, but I went into it thinking like, I don't remember really liking this one either. And I actually enjoyed it way more than I thought I would.
0: And my daughter watched it with me and I kept kind of glancing over at her while we were watching and she was into it. Okay, so Cinderella is meant to be 19. Okay, she's of age. According to an article on Screen Rant, I will not dig into their sources. Prince Charming is is animated in a way that tracks with probably being pretty much the same age as her. Unlike Snow White, where he seems noticeably older. Yes. So we're not going to get the nomenclature of the I Want song until like years later. The I Want song, to put it very short, is when the Disney princess or the Disney protagonist has their earliest song is usually them stating their goal. Mm -hmm. They're stating the thing they're longing for, the thing that they want most in the world. And if you look at A Dream as a Wish Your Heart Makes in the idea of an I Want song, She just wants peace and happiness. Right. She doesn't even think about love, I don't think.
1: Right. I can't even remember specifically, but yeah, she's like talking about, oh, no, no, no. Such a good dream.
0: So I'm looking up the lyrics for A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes just to like skim over them. In your dreams, you lose your heartaches. Whatever you wish for, you keep. Have faith in your dreams. And someday your rainbow will come smiling through. No matter how your heart is grieving, if you keep on believing, the dream that you wish will come true. She does not say that she wants love or riches or anything like that she's just singing her heart is grieving like she owns up to the fact that her life sucks yes. and she knows it
1: she's not asking to be saved either there is something to be said for all of that
0: there's a lot there and i feel like one thing that you know we go ahead and kind of have to get into at this point because i noticed it this quickly is the voice acting. oh thank god <laughs> so much
1: better yes. i mean so the notes so much better. i know you saw my notes and i think yours were similar She does not sound like a warbly bird child. She sounds like a mature woman.
0: Eileen Woods was born in 29. Yeah. So she would have been 21.
1: Mm -hmm. Close enough. I read that she beat 309 people for that role.
0: Including some really big names. Yeah. And she was virtually unknown. And it was some of her friends had her record some of the music. And she thought it was just like to record the music. as like a demo tape kind of idea. So she wasn't even trying that hard. She just does an excellent job. And she has... The thing that I noticed about her delivery... And like the voice acting, by the way, this whole movie. The whole movie, the voice acting is amazing. And we will get into Eleanor Audley. That's a whole thing. But Cinderella, even in those first scenes where she's talking to the birds, has a naturalness to her delivery. Mm -hmm. She doesn't feel like she's reading lines.
1: Not only does she sound like an adult, she sounds conversational and human. Yeah, Her delivery is very good.
0: The music... I said that A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. We've sort of been advancing in the music as we go. I feel like that song feels more modern. Right. Maybe it's just because I'm used to the music of the 1950s or something. Like that song and all of the songs in Mm -hmm. it, to me, felt more directly connected To how Disney music is even now.
1: Part of that was, I think, this was their first collaboration with Tin Pan Alley. And it was the first time that the Disney music company, this was the start of that. Yes, before there had been music that was written specifically for Disney, but this was Disney owned Disney music. Mm -hmm. I think there was like a degree of focus that came with that. And they were using Tin Pan Alley, they were using like these better resources to get all their stuff done and movie soundtracks weren't what they are now you couldn't just watch the movie and then go buy the soundtrack the music had to be noteworthy if it was going to do anything because that one of the things that i read when i was looking up the music about this one they said a lot of times it was like well it was their property and eventually they would just sell it because what were they going to do with it but then when they got this music they were able to make more of it there was a perry como release of was it bibbidi-bobbidi-boo this was the first movie where it was like, no, the song from a Disney movie is this huge
0: hit. bibbidi boppity boo I mean, you probably have children who have never seen or heard of this version of Cinderella and know that song. Yeah. It's infectious. It's fun. It's silly. It is exactly the kind of song that children love. Right. And will sing ad nauseum. Yes. For the rest of their lives. A
1: lot of it is nonsense syllables. Salakadula. What does that even mean?
0: It's mostly not got any real words in it. And it's sung so well. I'm not sure if the singing voice for the fairy godmother is the same as the voice acting. I
1: think it is because she trails from song and she's still speaking in rhyme as she's sending her on her way. Everything fairy godmother says is leading into or out of that song.
0: So looking at her voice, she does not have a singing voice listed. Because I know the prince actually is one of the ones who has two. Verna Felton who is the bitchy elephant bitchy elephant this makes me love her as an actress because that bitchy elephant was so bitchy she was just dripping in it and she made me hate her so much was what she was supposed to be doing right and the fairy godmother like you wrote she seems like she is gonna bake you some really great cookies Absolutely. Yes, she
1: is everyone's favorite grandma. Yeah. And she makes the best cookies in town. You know it. And she's going to be Queen of Hearts. And she is one of the three little fairies in Sleeping Beauty.
0: Yeah. I mean, this is just, since we're talking about the voice acting, let me get into Eleanor Audley, who is Lady Tremaine. I did not remember much about Lady Tremaine. Like, let's be honest, I only knew her name because she's in my Disney Magic Kingdoms game. Mm-hmm. But damn. It's a 100%. It's because of Eleanor Audley, because she was also the live-action model for Lady Tremaine. A lot of the other ones, they used someone else. But she was doing the voice, and she was also doing the postures yes. and the delivery. Yeah. This is a very early example of something that sort of becomes a Disney staple where they're recording the lines and then getting facial expressions from the actors that they'll then start to animate. They record the voices, and then the animators match it, and they start to pull in mannerisms and things from the people that are delivering. Even the guy that did the animation and the character design for Lady Tremaine specifically said that it was Eleanor Audley that did it. Yeah. That she was the one who brought this performance out. It was the way she did it.
1: And she's got that just kind of... No-nonsense, take-no-prisoners attitude.
0: This regal villainy. Yes. She will do anything to anyone. And she's so chillingly good. And Eleanor Audley, we're going to talk about again, because she is Maleficent. Mm -hmm. How did this woman do? Because Maleficent, to me, if I'm ranking the Disney villains Maleficent, I can't decide if she's number one or number two she is just such a good villain. And then of course, she's also Madame Leota in the crystal ball in the haunted mansion. Mm -hmm. And I think I've already told you my haunted mansion story about how I've not been on that ride yet, even though I, you know, tried (laughs) twice. (laughs) I mean, this woman, (laughs) she's got, this is where you, when you think of Disney movies, this era we're getting into is where you think Mm -hmm. of. I'm watching Cinderella and I'm just thinking like, this is Disney becoming Disney. Like you're watching it almost in real time. You're watching this movie as a foundational piece. Like, obviously, we've got 12 years of movies we've already seen. Right. They've made some amazing technique advancements. This is the one where it all came together.
1: Right. That's what I was going to say. This is the one where you really see all of those pieces that were good about the other ones put together into one puzzle
0: they're finding this voice talent they've got these animators that are doing astonishingly good jobs. yes and
1: if we can talk about the choice of the cinderella story i think was a big part of that and i'm going to give them the credit of saying that was conscious on their part as opposed to luck because even before this movie came out it was such a huge part of at least american culture this story Mm -hmm. was because you know it's a grim fairy tale okay fine
0: it goes back Hundreds of years before Grimm, even though. Yes,
1: exactly. What I saw, there was a Greek origin story. There's a Chinese origin story. There are all these things. And then Charles Perrault, saint would be his version. It's set in the mid to late 1800s. Everybody agrees. And in fact, they credited him. I saw in your notes. That's the one they're going with. And it's probably the one that's the most alike.
0: Because I think he's the one that really brought the fairy godmotherness to it.
1: Right. She was so ubiquitous. Cinderella. I I was reading through some stuff and one of the things that stood out to me was that there's a shell petroleum ad from the 40s where Cinderella is hopping out of the pumpkin. Years before this movie came out, so you know it's not the same imagery, it was everywhere. And then they were
0: like, oh, let's tell this story and hit it out of the park. And they did. Disney himself had done an animated version of Cinderella in the 20s. You know, who knows how well it really was known at the time but like they took a story that everybody was very very familiar with mm-hmm. I was talking about this with my husband and he was asking which Disney movie has the least amount of time between the source material and the adaptation because this one's probably the most right mm-hmm. the best we found out was actually with Bambi yeah oddly enough but this one is definitely the longest from the Smithsonian Magazine article that I read Folklores have identified more than 700 different variants of this story around the world. There are literally people who made their entire career on tracing the arc of Cinderella and the Cinderella stories. So, like, they're not... These aren't people that are adding in anything that's even vaguely similar. These are people that actually, like, there is a categorization of folklore and mythology and fairy tales. Between the Smithsonian article and the one from NPR by Linda Holmes, whatever you want to know about the history of the evolution of the Cinderella story, Mm -hmm. they both knock it out of the park on that one. They're really fun to read, too, because... Let's see. Okay, so this is my favorite part from the NPR article. When it's stripped to its basics, as it is in the 1950 cartoon, for instance, there's barely enough to it to sustain more than a paragraph. Sad girl gets magic dress, goes to dance, loses shoe, is found. Yeah. The film is only an hour and 15 minutes long, and much of that is stuffed not with Cinderella's story, but with Tom and Jerry-style animal hooliganism involving the mice, the birds, the cat, and the dog. And then helper animals are common in the folklore variants, though. The movie comes by those mice and birds, honestly, from hundreds of years of history. Mm -hmm. So that was not fully them just being like, let's have helper animals because Snow White had helper animals. Right. When you think about the plot of Cinderella, the fact that it fills an hour is actually kind of surprising.
1: Yes. And when you consider that they took out all of the prince's story.
0: That's another thing that Linda Holmes says is that the prince is a MacGuffin. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he barely exists. She was like, if you're trying to save room in your adaptation of, of Cinderella, don't bother hiring an actor for the prince. Just have a sack of flour. Yeah. yeah, <laughs> Because he he doesn't do anything. Yeah, And he doesn't. I think that the only character that the prince gets is when he yawns and kind of rolls his eyes at the ball. Right. That's all you get. And honestly,
1: one of the things that I actually liked better about the live action one that came out in 2015 was specifically that he has a story. He has dialogue right. with his father. He cares about his father. His father cares about him. And he's got his own story arc through the movie. When I was like, oh, no, they had a story. They took it out. Okay, Well, at least he's not just, like you say, a sack of flour.
0: I put it in the notes, and then also, because I texted you last night, Ever After Mm -hmm. is my favorite version of this story, partially because of my age and how old I was when it came out. It was absolutely the right movie for me at the right time. I was watching it last night, because I texted, and I was like, should I wait to watch Ever After until after we record so it's not, like, totally coloring my opinion? And you were like, go ahead, watch it. So. Because one of the things that I loved about that one, and it is apparently the, one of the other things from the 2015 movie, like you said, is that they actually give them time to meet before the boss. Yes, They have a little bit more interaction. It's the same with Cinder um, by Marissa Mayer, which is a steampunk young adult book version of the story mm-hmm. where Cinderella is a cyborg. If you haven't read them, please do. Okay, They're great. At the end, she doesn't lose a shoe, she loses her foot.
1: Fair. I mean, if you're a cyborg.
0: And it it gets weirder from there. She's also from the moon.
1: Like most cyborgs, obviously. Just goes without saying.
0: You know. But anywho, in that one as well, she meets the prince well before the ball. And they have discussions and dialogue and things. And most of the time, the whole thing is that Cinderella doesn't actually really care for the prince all that much. And slowly falls in love with him. In the adaptations where they do Right. And I love that. But in this one, you know, I wasn't mad at it. Because... The prince is not given enough of anything so that I can sort of just read things onto him if I want to. Right. And just be like, well, he seems like a nice enough guy. Sure. Their dance together is clearly a montage. We have no, lo- had no idea how long they walk and dance in the garden. Mm-hmm. For all we know, it's two hours. You know, why not assume the best?
1: Yeah. Honestly, I knew I was going to marry my husband the day I met him. It took six years for that to happen. Right. But I knew then. And so what do I care?
0: This is the rant at the end of my notes. May as well go ahead and have it now. At the time that this is set, not necessarily the 1950s, where the 1950s were starting to get a little bit more into the idea of, you know, your spouse is supposed to be your better half and your whole world and everything. But at the time where this movie is actually set, arranged marriage and transactional marriage is the norm. Yes.
1: Especially among royalty.
0: Right. The king trying to arrange a thing where the prince will fall in love and propose is actually a little anachronistic. But the idea that Cinderella, who at this point is living her life more or less as, I mean, she is a servant. She has nothing. Right. She is being constantly emotionally and physically abused. Yes. She has no prospects. She has nothing to look forward to. She's trying to maintain this optimistic outlook and she sees an opportunity to marry someone who, yeah, sure. She's only known for one evening, but he was pretty nice. Yeah. And he's got a lot of money. So, I don't blame her at all. The fact that he's presented as, like, I mean, he's supposed to be Prince Charming. The fact that he's presented as as a pretty good guy, more or less. This is me reading things onto him because he is kind of nothing. I mean, why couldn't she make that work? It
1: would be, I guess, not highly unlikely. But it's unlikely that she's going to leave her current situation where she had a happy childhood with her father to a miserable adolescence to something worse, right? Right. By marrying up, conceivably she would end up in a loveless marriage and she would hate him and blah, 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 blah. But she could avoid him and still live in a castle.
0: The idea that this is whatever century in France and that she's found a prince who's a pretty nice guy. Yeah. Whose dad is insane but not in a bad way yes we'll talk about him i don't understand this need for people to not just trust the happily ever after at the end of this because the movie tells us they lived happily ever after and everybody loves to twist themselves in knots to say why they didn't or why they wouldn't or why they couldn't when they're revisiting cinderella they're constantly trying to figure out how to make it cynical and i don't think the story should be cynical The whole point of the story is encompassed in that opening song. Yeah.
1: Have you seen Into the Woods?
0: It has been years.
1: That is kind of like a mishmash of all the fairy tales. And in one of them, there is Prince Charming. The woman kind of runs off with him. And then he turns out to, like you said, kind of be a cad. And he's like, well, listen, all I am is charming. I'm not noble. I'm not loyal. You can mine a lot of story out of that idea. And that's why people do it. And you can make good stories out of those ideas. But at the end of the day, you don't have to then take away from the merits of this movie and this story.
0: Yeah. You know, you can do that. And that's your interpretation. They can
1: exist independently of each other.
0: Yeah. You don't have to apply that modern take or that modern cynicism to this version. Because this version... It's not that. It's not what it's doing and it's not what it's saying. This is a theme that's going to come up again and again and again with us, I imagine. The internet loves to rag on the Disney princesses. Mm -hmm. They really do. And some of it, some of it is coming from a very honest feminist anger that I can understand. My thing with it is that, you know, first of all, you need to take what's actually in the movie, not... What's in modern culture, not what you're pulling into it, not what you've experienced, like what's in the movie and what's in the movie of this version of Cinderella. This 1950 version is a story about a woman in a society where she had no power. right? She had no agency. She had no ability. And she really made the best of a really horrible situation. Everybody says that she's passive. She's not passive.
1: No, she's got a spine.
0: Exactly. I mean, the part where she starts talking to Bruno about how, like, you know, you can't really chase Lucifer, but I don't mind if you dream about it because, like, that cat has it coming. When they start ringing the bells for breakfast and she's like, oh, good God, you guys. Yeah. She's rolling her eyes. She's being sarcastic. She knows that these people are abusive. She's not naive.
1: That's exactly the thing. She's not naive. And she is a whole person and she does have a spine. This is set probably from the 1860s into the 1880s that's sort of the agreed on agreed upon span of cindra's childhood to when this is taking place back then it was her lot in life to be happy with her lot in life Mm -hmm. yeah the feminist in me is like but at the end of the day that's not the lens through through which this movie was being made. And so I can have some frustrations about some things and I certainly do. But at the end of the day, it's also okay for it to exist on its own. She's not helpless. That's my biggest thing is that she is not she's not hopeless and she isn't a dish rag.
0: And she is actually making choices and she is actually doing things. With assistance. Yes, one hundred percent. People are like, oh, she can't get anything done without her fairy godmother, and I'm like No, but she did. Right. She did. She kept trying. She was like, no, why don't you let me go to the ball? And I mean, she probably knew. But the fact that she even asked. And then, you know, she's like, oh, this is an old dress of my mother's. Here's how I'm going to fix it up. Here's how I'm going to do the best with what I've got. The way that when they leave to go to the ball and she realizes that she hasn't had enough time to fix her dress and that this was intentional all along. And she says, yes, good night as she goes up the stairs. But that's, again, the voice acting, the tone she puts on that good night is as close to a fuck you as Cinderella would ever be allowed to say. But it is loud and clear. And then she has this dress that the mice have fixed up, which, okay, sure, the mice did it. The mice did it because she's been so kind and generous to the mice this whole time. She sewed them clothes. Yeah, they're like, she's made us clothes. She's done these things for us. She's fed us. She's taken care of us. She keeps us safe from the cat. She's been so nice to these animals for so long that they're like, oh, let's do something nice for her. Because we know what's going to happen here. Let's do something good for her. And in fact,
1: that's exactly what Jack says. Oh, it's never going to happen. Because he knows. He starts the thing. He's like, Cinderella, Cinderella. And he goes into his song. He's exactly setting up her situation and her frustration. You know, and then they sing the song and you know, whatever. It's cute. Yeah, that's exactly it.
0: And you can
1: finish your point, but then let's talk about the dresses.
0: First of all, when the sisters attack her and rip her dress off, that is a terrifying mm-hmm. moment. And the way that it's done is just, it's very chilling. And it shows it to be like the violation and betrayal that that moment really right. is. But then she goes out to the garden. She's sobbing. The fairy godmother, when she materializes, is singing A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes. And Cinderella is saying, it's not true. I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe that that's true. And I didn't realize that she has such a dark moment where she has given up. Because people start to talk about, like, oh, you know, Cinderella's thing is that she has this faith in being nice and believing and that that really sees her through. And yes, technically that's true. But... That moment, she says, I don't actually believe that. And then the fairy godmother says, you must still believe it a little bit or else I wouldn't be here. Right. So Cinderella's fairy godmother appears and helps her because of Cinderella's actions, belief, and character. We don't need for us to be like, you know, oh, this character actually does things. They don't need to do everything by themselves. They don't need to do it alone. But everything that happens for Cinderella and to Cinderella through the movie that's good is because of her.
1: Right, it's because of her past good deeds, basically. You're absolutely right.
0: And the prince falls in love with her because of her. Yeah. I mean, he does also see her, and he's like, oh, God, that girl's gorgeous. But, yeah. you know. Yes. I would imagine that they talked a little bit while yeah, they Yeah, and able. she was like, wait,
1: you don't have mice that talk to you and sew for you? And he's like, what are you talking I about? Think- you, you need my help.
0: Let's get married. i yeah. <laughs> kidding. Okay. And there are all the people that talk about the prince and his facial blindness. Like, first of all, the prince never actually sees Cinderella again until after they bring her back saying, this is the girl the slipper fits. In this version, that's important to note. So it's not like he saw her and he was like, I don't know who this maid is. Right. But also, nobody else recognized her, including her stepsisters and her stepmother. Her stepmother was like, she seems familiar, but I don't know. She only puts it together from context clues.
1: Honestly, if you had a person who wore rags and was the servant person in your home and you never really cared enough about them to look at them, and then suddenly they're all spiffed up and they're wearing this gigantic dress and they're sparkling then you might not recognize them either. If you didn't think of them as a whole person and then you suddenly see them as elevated above you, you might not recognize them. But, okay, so the fashion.
0: Let's get into the dresses. People loved Cinderella's dresses. Mm -hmm. Luckily, they don't dissect the Scepster's dresses because they don't wear anything.
1: Yeah, but...
0: They have have one outfit.
1: I was looking into it because I was like, "Mm, when does this take place? When were the butt bustles? Because the thing is, in the 19th century, especially, and especially even more before then, French fashion was different from American fashion, from English fashion. There's a small strip of water between England and France. And even then it was different, and so I looked up fashion plates. I even have a book full of fashion plates from this era, because this is how dresses and patterns things were advertised. I won't say they nailed it, but they kind of did for the sisters that women were wearing the butt bustle, especially in the late nineteenth century and in France in rural France, I don't know. Paris has been the fashion capital for a very long time. This is supposedly more rural France
0: to be fair. Lady Tremaine would have wanted her daughters to be at the height of fashion. Right.
1: The thing is, their gowns are pretty accurate, all things considered. I don't know that they'd be wearing a bustle gown in their day-to-day life while they're practicing singing and flute, because I think that the fancier bustle stuff would be saved for evening wear. But then again, who cares, right? Nobody's going to hate this movie because they timed the bustles incorrectly. And then the other thing is, though, like, day wear and evening wear were generally different and so pretty much when they got ready for the ball they just added a feathered cap and boom they're ready for the ball that's not really how it would go their day wear would be different from their evening wear that being said again who cares
0: and it's a thing with animation where most of your characters are just going to look the exact same throughout the whole movie right cinderella gets costume changes but they're actually in in the story
1: and at the end of the day again nobody cares nobody is going to pan this movie no
0: because they're still noticing the transformation scene
1: exactly and so cinderella's dress she opens up the closet it is clearly dated and it is really kind of an 1860 silhouette and we're looking at probably in the mid 1880s at this point in the movie but she's like oh it was my mother's well suddenly this makes sense That's and the fairy godmother updates it the silhouette of that dress is definitely earlier when than when the rest of the story takes place. But, like, she rocks it.
0: Maybe that's why she stands out at the ball. Maybe
1: so. It could be that she's twinkling.
0: <laughs> There's also that. It could be. <laughs> but, yeah. Some of this is a thing where, like, pop culture teaches us what to think. But it's interesting to me that, like, me watching this yesterday in 2022, the clothes that these women are wearing are telling me a story about who they are. In the same way that it would have in 1950, Mm -hmm. her high collar and long sleeves and manicured nails and severe hairdo and and all of these things are telling me about how she's very prim and proper and uptight and cold. And, you know, I'm getting the same cultural notes from her character design. And again, some of that is because these movies formed the foundation which created the pop culture, which created me. Right. It's just an interesting thing to think about. Also,
1: in 1950, so Christian Dior, he had a very short active period and then he died. But so it was like three years of heated activity. But his impact cannot be understated on fashion. And he really took advantage of the post-war boom. And again, that's part of the context for this. And he changed the silhouette of women's fashion. What he did to women's fashion was he brought back those big poofy skirts and the little teeny tiny waist. Because if you look at 1940s fashion Mm. and 1950s fashion, it's not only Dior's influence, but it was Dior's influence. And if you look at just those silhouette changes, that was him. 1950, Mm. and if you look at what the silhouette of Cinderella's fairy godmother ball gown is that is Dior
0: yeah that's interesting because okay so here's one thing I don't know how much attention you paid to it because it is almost a blink and you'll miss it moment and it is completely washed out by the botched restoration which we will talk about Mm -hmm. in a minute Cinderella's wedding dress in the very last scene to me looked like a Vera Wang Mm -hmm. to me it read very modern very classic you know sure it had sort of the fairy tale poof at the bottom The top of it was just very understated. And I just, I loved it. I almost kind of want that Mm -hmm. dress. That was the kind of thing that I would have been looking for in a wedding gown when I got married. Her wedding dress, I thought, was really beautiful. And I was very mad that I couldn't see it better because of this restoration. So I don't know how much time we want to spend on this because there are articles out there that have done this probably better than I ever could. And especially like a Twitter thread where somebody explained the actual technical things that happen. But apparently when Disney restored Cinderella for the Blu-ray release. They washed it out and messed it up, is the best way to put it. Both of us noticed that Cinderella herself and that the prince get very
1: flat. Mm -hmm. Again, no noses, no
0: cheeks. They lose their noses, they lose their cheeks, the dress loses definition, his clothes lose definition. And for me, there was a moment where I noticed that her face was flat, but it was flat, and then it got expression, and then it was flat again. When you're looking at Lady Tremaine and you're looking at the mice and even the birds, like the birds for me was the real tell, that the birds had more shading. What happened was basically when they're going to restore this for the Blu-ray release and make it like high def, instead of actually like restoring it, they just kind of airbrushed it. Yeah. I mean, that's layman's terms. That's not exactly, that's not what they did. Technical terms, they did something else, but especially the ball gown and especially like her wedding dress. There are before and after images on the internet where you can see that you are losing definition in the clothing. You are losing shading. You are losing some of the magic sparkles that make the transformation so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I feel like that's definitely this streaming version on Disney plus definitely has those problems. And so as much as I want to be like, Ugh, some of those parts, like, they lose their noses. It's a technical issue where they have messed it up. right? Which is sad. It's sad. It's sad because this movie is 100% recommend from me. Yeah. And this is the first one. Yeah. Revisiting the Vault is a nine-hour films production and it's edited by Mary Ratliff. Our music is by Music Motion and Lynn Publishing we are not affiliated with or authorized by the Walt Disney Company. You can find us on Twitter at RevisitTheVault, and you can find our website at RevisitingTheVault.com. Don't forget to check out our Patreon. Patrons can get personalized thank you cards, stickers, and access to deleted scenes and outtakes. You can find that over at Patreon.com slash 9hourfilms. If you want to support us, the best thing you can do is to tell other people about the show, and make sure that you leave a review in whatever app you're using to listen. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time.